Decisions about the future are based on assumptions about the past. They're based on assumptions about causation. And this is one of the things that historical ecologies have really sought to do, is to create data sets which can inform decisions rather than having them based on assumptions. For example, one of the early studies explored the chronology and the reasons for soil erosion in a particular area of Tanzania. And it had been attributed by various people through colonial and post-colonial governments to particular practices. So livestock farming, or the cutting down of trees, or the ways that people were managing that landscape today. And what that project did was actually to, to produce data about long-term landscape change and showed that actually these soil erosion was not tied to these very recent practices. It was a much longer-term issue and it was related to a combination of factors, but also the ways that people were densely inhabiting certain points in the landscape. And by doing that, they could provide an evidential base for conversations about what to do about erosion in the future. So it's about recognizing that we can produce data about what happened in the past. You don't have to guess. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie van der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Stephanie Wynne-Jones, who is a lecturer and Africanist archaeologist at the University of York in the UK. She has been a Pro Futura Scientia Fellow and was in residence at SCAS during 2015-2016. And this is the second episode on our theme, Africa. This time we will dive into historical ecologies along the Swahili coast and what this means for the past, present and future. Welcome to SCAS Talk, Stephanie. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you very much for having me. As you've said, I work in the archaeology department at the University of York in the UK, and I'm an archaeologist specializing in Africa, the African past, and specifically in Eastern Africa. And I've worked for many years on the East African coast, often known as the Swahili coast, where I've conducted a series of projects looking at Swahili towns and thinking about the archaeology of towns in this region, thinking about trade. And I've also got a, an ongoing interest in material culture. But one of the things um, I've been doing recently, which we're talking about today, is trying to think about towns within a broader landscape and trying new methodologies to think about how towns functioned in the past. It will be very interesting to hear more about that. How come you got interested in this subject to start off with? I mean, I've worked in Eastern Africa since just before I did my master's degree, and then I specialized with a PhD in African archaeology. And really, I'd always liked the discovery part of archaeology, the idea of finding new knowledge and writing new stories about the past. And one of the things I've always really enjoyed about working in Eastern Africa is working in a region where, because we don't have a very detailed historical record for the pre-colonial period, we as archaeologists really are 
writing the past. We're discovering new things, new knowledge that we didn't know before. I've worked on the towns of the Swahili coast since my PhD, which was a study of a particular town in its region and thinking about how the town of Kilwa fitted into a landscape of settlement. And I suppose to sort of move towards thinking about those towns in terms of a resource landscape and a subsistence base has been something that has happened over time. It's partly been about incorporating new methodologies and working in an interdisciplinary way actually has enabled that. And so it's sort of developed out of my ongoing research and the people with whom I've been collaborating. I always like to know what things and names actually mean, because I think there's a lot of explanation you can get from explaining a term or, an, or a name. So the excavation sites where you have been active and that we will talk about today, one of them is called Unguja Oku. Is that the right pronunciation? Yes. <laughs> and the other one, Tumbatu. So what do these names mean? And maybe also, can you situate us in time and place a little bit? So these are both sites on one of the islands of the Zanzibar archipelago, which is made up of two small islands just off the coast of modern-day Tanzania. And they're part of Tanzania politically. And both these sites are on the island of Unguja, which is the main island. It's, it's also often just known as Zanzibar. And they are archaeological sites which relate to different periods of the archipelago's past. So Nguja Uku is a site on the southwestern coast of the island of Nguja. It dates from about the 7th century, but it was occupied really intensively from the 8th to the 10th centuries AD. And after that, it declined a little, but it was reoccupied at various periods. And then Tumbatu is a site which sort of picks up a little bit where Ngujaku leaves off. It's actually a site on an even smaller island off the coast of northwestern Nguja, and it dates from about the 11th to the 15th centuries, and it dates to what is in some ways the sort of golden age of pre-colonial Swahili urbanism, and is a town built of coral, and this was a period where we get a whole series of towns along the East African coast built of coral. And in terms of the names, I'm actually not 100% sure what Tumbatu means. It's the name of the island, and I'm not entirely sure what it means beyond that. But Ngujuraku is a really interesting name because Uku means main or major, And so Ngujaku as a place name actually means the principal site on Nguja or the capital of Nguja. And what's wonderful about this is that this is the older site. It's actually a site which is rather difficult to identify today because of the nature of the archaeology there is less monumental and less impressive. And yet it's retained this name which points to this importance that it had in the first millennium AD, when we are told by the name that it was the main site on Nguja. Another term that you will come to later on, I guess, during this podcast is sustainability, a word that we hear a lot nowadays. But in terms of your research, what does sustainability mean? 
Well, you're right. This is a, a word that we hear a lot these days. And our research um, or my research at these sites is embedded in a broader conversation that's happening within archaeology, within history, within environmental sciences in Eastern Africa about trying to understand long-term landscape adaptations and subsistence adaptations and ways that people have used resources and environments in the past. And the aim of that is to think about the effects that human practices have on their environment, both the ones that seem to have worked well and encouraged environmental biodiversity and sustained larger populations, and also the things that did not work that well and which were later abandoned. And so for me, this term sustainability is about thinking through the ways people used landscapes in the past and using that to contribute to a conversation about what works and what doesn't. And if things don't last forever, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not sustainable. It's just having that long-term understanding of the consequences of particular practices. I was just thinking about one thing now when you talked about the towns, that one of them was built with the corals. Yeah. That sounds very unusual. Actually, building from coral is a practice all along the East African coast. And it's introduced as a material for building in about the 11th century. And at the beginning, it's used mainly for mosques and tombs. And this is a moment when we see a widespread conversion to Islam. But it's also a moment when we can recognize that because people have started building mosques from coral, which lasts a long time. So perhaps there was a widespread conversion even beforehand. But yes, there is no good building stone on the coast. And so the, you know, the bedrock is coral. So when you're built, digging up stone for building, what you're digging up is dead coral, um, what's called coral rag. So I think that's one reason for using it. But it's also a really flexible material. So the coral stone itself is very light. It can be carved and shaped into particular shapes. And in fact, in the past, people would take living coral from the reef as well, because that's even softer. And so for ornamental features or blocks that needed to be a particular shape, they'd use the living coral. But also, it can be burned down to make a lime mortar or to make a lime plaster. And so it provides this material, which sort of gives you all the, all the building blocks of an architectural tradition. And so, yes, it's, it's been widespread along the coast. It's still used as a building material in, in Zanzibar. And it's also found in other regions. You find coral being used for architecture along the Red Sea coast in places like Yemen and in other parts of the Indian Ocean world, the, the coast of northwest India, for example. So it's actually not unique, but it's definitely distinctive to this region. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the coast of East Africa. And quite little has been known about the history, as you said, the pre-colonial history. How come? Well, this is a region where there are no indigenous written histories before the European colonial period. So there is no sort of written tradition which can tell us about the politics, the economy, the social life of this region. What we know, we know through archaeology, 
combined with other disciplines like historical linguistics, which allows us to trace particular ideas and contacts and vocabulary back in time. And in conjunction with, with the analysis of oral traditions, which have a very different sort of mode of, of analysis to, to written texts. And that work has actually been really vibrant in Eastern African studies, but perhaps it's less well known globally than if there was this sort of written history. And also, I think sometimes those narratives that are pieced together from archaeology, from linguistics, from these different sources, are perhaps less easy for a general public to navigate. I think perhaps we as archaeologists are not as good at telling stories as historians might be. But yes, so it's it's partly about a lack of histories and it's partly about the complexity of the record, I suppose, and the fact that we're still writing the story. Yeah, and maybe we also all should get better about learning about African history because, I don't know, I feel like it's nothing you learn a lot about in school. Or No, well, certainly I didn't. I think, I, I don't know what it's like in Sweden, but I know that in the UK that is now changing somewhat. My husband's a history teacher, actually, and they do have elements on the curriculum that history teachers can choose to teach which do bring in elements of African history, of Islamic history that sort of look beyond Europe a little bit better. Whether or not the history teachers teach them is probably another matter. Maybe they don't feel confident to do so. It's always being said that we all come from Africa and uh, we should take a little bit more interest in that continent, I think. Well, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons to take an interest in the African past. I mean, you're right, of course, that in the deep past, everyone came from Africa. And, and actually, that element of the African past is pretty well studied and well known. But also, African history is fascinating, of course. But also, even on a European history curriculum, I mean, Europe has been interacting with Africa for many centuries. And so to tell the story of Europe without telling the story of Africa is to sort of miss a lot of what was going on and the ways that Europe was benefiting often from a relationship with that continent. Let's talk about your research project then, Urban Transitions and Ecology on Zanzibar. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project that you're doing right now? Yes, of course. One proviso is that <laughs> we're struggling a little bit with fieldwork because of the pandemic and the fact that it's been impossible to travel. And so the project had as an aim the idea that we would look at two sites within their landscape. And so we'd chosen these two sites of Ngujiraku, which represented this sort of early period of urban development on Zanzibar from the sort of 7th to the 10th centuries, when people first settled in these sort of densely settled coastal locations and started trading really extensively with the Indian Ocean world. And then we were going to look at Tumbatu, which represented the 11th to 15th centuries, when towns in the archipelago and on the East African coast were much more established when they had this coral architecture that we've discussed and when there's a sort of different format to the towns and actually to the town at Tumbatu because it occupies this small island off the coast it's a very different setting to Ngujiraku so 
our idea was to travel to each of these places and think about the town or the settlement in terms of the ways it was embedded in a resource landscape. So thinking about how they used local resources and local landscapes to create these urban settlements. And my expectation was that that relationship with a resource landscape would be very different for the two different periods. And so that then gives us a picture of some changing priorities in terms of why and how people were occupying urban settings. Up until now, we've done our Ngujira coup fieldwork and we haven't yet been able to travel to Timbatu. But actually, I have a PhD student in Uppsala who has done some fieldwork at Timbatu. So we do have some sense of what, what we might have found. So at Ngujira coup, what we've done is we have conducted fieldwork within the site and we have, for the first time at this site, focused in on domestic households to try and excavate the houses people were living in, which were built of earth and wood at this time. And so there's a methodological challenge there. And in order to think about how people were using resources in their daily life. So to get away from this sort of broad picture that you might get by just digging one hole and thinking about how things changed over time, and instead to start thinking about how people lived there and how they used the surrounding landscape in that life. So we've excavated three houses now and found that it's possible to reconstruct the things that people were doing inside, the things that they were cooking, what wood they were using to cook with, and shown that they were using a really broad range of resources, actually, um, rather than having animals that they were herding and managing on site. They did have some sheep or goat at the site, but mostly they relied on fish to a large extent and wild resources as well. They hunted a lot of wild animals and they were obviously using coastal forest, which is not currently there, in some other ways as well, because looking at the charcoal that you find in the houses, they were building with hardwoods from that coastal forest. They were also using extensively the mangrove from a nearby mangrove creek for building, but also for burning, for cooking. And so we can start from those households sort of looking out to reconstruct this landscape that the inhabitants were going out into on a daily basis. We've also done a lot of survey in the landscape around, and we have sampled some of the soils for looking at buried landscapes. And we've tentatively identified some urban agricultural areas just outside the area of housing, where they seem to have created agricultural fields in the landscape. And that's also associated with a series of wells. So there was a management of water resources going on here as well. And then finally, we've also been looking at a lot of the artifacts, obviously coming from the site and looking at them in the houses using this approach to daily life and found that it was a real center for craft production, actually. And the crafts were mostly being done at a household scale in the houses. They were even smithing iron on a small scale, sort of in and around the houses of the settlement, using local hardwoods for fuel and using quite a local tech 
technology, a sort of specific technology for making and working iron. And but they were also making beads using shells from the coral reef. And they seem to have been spinning thread and making cloth. So we can immediately sort of start to see this as a quite a busy industrial sort of setting, but within this household context at Ngujoku. But that all sounds pretty advanced and pretty complete, like an ecosystem in itself to me. Yes, I think it was. But it was also very new because one of the things we've also done is we've done some quite high resolution radiocarbon dating in some of those houses. And you can see that that actually this isn't a place that had this really long, drawn out urban development. Instead, these houses went up relatively quickly. And within the space of two generations, there was this as you describe, a fully developed ecosystem of craft production and using local resources. And you can even see in some of the isotopic results on human teeth that you can see the transition that they made to that coastal environment. You can see when they started eating a lot of fish and they were adapting to that coastal setting within a couple of generations. And it, yes, it was a fully developed system, an advanced system, but it was also one that was created to suit the needs of that setting. And you analyze things on site, but you also have taken things home to the UK to analyze them in a lab? We have, yeah. So this project is a collaboration between York and the Center for Urban Network Evolutions, which is at Aarhus University in Denmark. And we've got materials at the labs in Aarhus in particular with their geosciences expertise, a lot of the soil samples, the sediment samples that we've taken from inside houses and across the landscape have gone to Aarhus for analysis. And then in York, we've got bone materials largely from animals and some from humans and the artifacts. So yeah, we have a, we have a lot here. They will be returned to Zanzibar at the end of the project. That's part of the process. It must be very exciting when you're out there and excavating things and finding stuff and so on. So, so how is it to do this kind of fieldwork? Well, yes, I think it is very exciting. As I said, for me, one of the joys of archaeology is to find new things and in particular to excavate these types of setting that nobody has done before. And so you really are telling new stories. And yes, there are some wonderful moments in that. For example, in our last excavation season, we excavated an earthen house which had obviously burned down and collapsed. And it meant that the earth from which it had been built was baked almost like clay and it had protected everything that was underneath. So as we took it off, we were finding this floor level from the 8th century AD with all these belongings still in place. You know, we found a small glass bottle such as was probably for perfume or incense. And it was just sort of, you know, sitting there on the floor along with a coal stick for applying, you know, black coal around the eyes. You really have these moments where you're recovering, you know, the, the remnants of somebody's life and you can get a little insight into that, even at the distance of 1300 years. It's like going with a time machine. It is. 
That's the joy of archaeology. But then actually, so for this project, this is a really interdisciplinary project. And one of the ways we're able to think about resources is by bringing in a lot of scientific analyses. And in some ways, that means that some of the discovery happens later because, you know, we're taking soil samples and we don't know until later when you map them out, you see patterns of particular elements in the soil, which can show you where they were cooking or where their animals were being kept and that kind of thing. So some of the picture keeps growing once you get home. Sure. But then nowadays you have all these possibilities to do this kind of quite advanced analysis of, for example, soil samples or DNA or whatever you wish. Indeed, there's a lot of opportunities to expand. But I think that analysis is only as good as the data you have. So that's one of the reasons that we've had this emphasis on trying to look at households, for example, because yes, you can do this really advanced analysis on the animal bones that come out and see what the animals were eating and where they came from and how old they were and how they were butchered. But in a way, unless you can tie that to the ways that people were living to a house or to a site or to know exactly how it fits into the life of the town, then that level of resolution is almost wasted, really. Why is it so important to know more about the past for the future, so to say, for taking decisions for the future? It's important to know about the past when thinking about the future because decisions about the future are based on assumptions about the past. They're based on assumptions about causation. And this is one of the things that historical ecologies have really sought to do is to create data sets which can inform decisions rather than having them based on assumptions. So for example, one of the early studies, which actually was a Swedish study based at Stockholm University initially, which was called People, Land and Time in Africa, they explored the chronology and the reasons for soil erosion in a particular area of Tanzania. And that was a a widely recognized issue in this particular area. And it had been attributed by various people through colonial and post-colonial governments to particular practices. So livestock farming, or the cutting down of trees, or the ways that people were managing that landscape today. And what that project did was actually to to produce data about long-term landscape change and showed that actually these soil erosion was not tied to these very recent practices. It was a much longer-term issue, and it was related to a combination of factors about the use of certain agricultural practices, probably the cutting down of certain types of tree, but also the ways that people were densely inhabiting certain points in the landscape. And by doing that, they could provide an evidential base for conversations about what to do about erosion in the future. So it's about recognizing that we can produce data about what happened in the past, about potentially about the causes of some of the biodiversity challenges or landscape challenges. You don't have to guess (laughs) about the causes and then make changes based on those assumptions, which is what successive governments had done in that region. 
You were talking about the Muslim culture, and there was also quite a lot of trading with the rest of the world from Zanzibar. So can we talk a little bit about trade and also then the influence of other cultures? The Swahili coast in general is really strongly associated with it's one of the defining characteristics of the settlement of this region over the last 1500 years. And right from when we see the first coastal sites, they are full of trade goods which have come from other parts of the Indian Ocean world. And archaeologists for many decades have been mapping those connections and thinking about how the coast was networked into systems, particularly of Islamic trade, what's been called the Islamic world system of this sort of network of trade around the Indian Ocean in the what we would call the medieval period. And we can see that the inhabitants of the East African coast were looking out to that world. They were clearly exploiting those opportunities. I find the early period really fascinating because I find it interesting to imagine how first that happened. <laughs> you can imagine that once Zanzibar is, is known as a destination and a place you can get particular goods, then people would travel there deliberately. But how is it that somebody sets themselves up at a site on the coast, looking out towards this world of trade and sort of manages to connect themselves with that world? I think it's fascinating. But certainly once that had happened, it continued for many centuries. And Zanzibar in particular is really well cited for being part of those Indian Ocean networks. There's a system of monsoons and winds in the Indian Ocean, which allows for travel around the ocean rim in both directions at different times of year, meaning that, I'm not saying that travel is easy, but it's comparatively easy to travel around from the Persian Gulf, say, down the East African coast, and then make the return voyage when the winds reverse, when the monsoon reverses. And so using that monsoon system, these areas have been interconnected for many centuries. And the spread of Islam was part of that connectivity. And in this region, in fact, around the Indian Ocean world, the spread of Islam was not through conquest, it was through connection. And the precise mode of conversion is difficult to reconstruct from archaeology, but we can see a growing Muslim presence on the coast from the earliest mosque that's been identified, which is on the north coast of Kenya at a place called Shanga, where there's a small 8th century mosque, which may just have catered for Muslim visitors coming to trade at the site to later periods, particularly from the 11th century, when large mosques are in many of the sites and they would have catered to the population of the coast. And from that time, we know that there were Muslim populations along the coast and in the coastal towns. And that remains defining characteristic of the coast today. It's Islamic communities along the coast. And then sort of further inland, there's, there tends to be a much more Christian presence. It's very interesting how sort of the natural spread, migration of people that has always been taking place also get the effects. But And there's also 
growing evidence as we learn what to look for, for East Africans moving into other parts of the Indian Ocean world as well. There's a site called Sharma, which is on the coast of Yemen, where a French researcher, Axel Rugel, has found a sort of trading site, which was like an entrepot with people traveling from apparently from different parts of the Indian Ocean world to trade. And one area of that site is full of African ceramics, very similar to the ceramics found on Zanzibar, actually, and on Pemba. And it seems that there may even have been a community of East Africans there, part of that trading world. So they weren't just sitting on Zanzibar waiting for sailors to come to them. They were very much part of those networks of travel and trade. So you're focusing, if we go back a little bit, you're focusing on the households and their systems and ecologies. How can you apply that to a bit more urban ecology? We were inspired in thinking about this project by some of the work that's gone on within archaeology, thinking about urban ecology. So trying to think about towns almost as a sort of ecosystem with resource flows that are going in and out and thinking about how those settlements are based on a set of landscape resources and also how they create different opportunities and resources across a broader network and how they affect the landscape around them, how you get these sort of anthropogenic landscapes. And what we wanted to do was to think about these sites as functioning settlements rather than focusing just on the ways they were connected to the outside world. Our aim was to get into local systems of production and consumption and the ways that they were embedded in a particular set of resources. And in thinking about urban ecology and trying to think about the ways people used resources, I see context as being really crucial. So being able to tie the use of a particular wood, for example, to a particular type of building within the site or to the fact that they were smithing iron and that they were using a particular wood as fuel. And so I want to know not just that they used the mangrove, I want to know how they used the mangrove. And so by tying that down to the level of household, we were trying to get at that sort of human scale of activity so that we could think about how and why people were using resources and how that added up to a form of life which was urban or you know different from what might have happened elsewhere. And then how can you fit this into an even bigger context? You've talked about the African historical ecology. How does that come into the picture? So African historical ecology is a flourishing field. It's been an attempt on the part of a number of researchers to bring together historical and environmental data to think about long-term uses of particular landscapes, particular resources. And often it has been actually about creating usable stories about the past. It's explicitly been a conversation about informing conservation practices for the present and the future. And there's a lot that comes under that umbrella. And actually, 
to think about towns or, or sort of dense urban settings has not been so commonly done. And we thought that this would be an interesting contribution to that conversation because, I mean, most people live in towns and people are moving to towns across Africa more generally. And that creates a lot of competition over resources. On the coast, it creates a lot of competition over water, for example, and access to particular maritime resources. And I don't think we can answer all those questions with this project on Zanzibar. But what we can do is start putting together some of that evidence about long-term uses of resources and how people made that work to support populations in the past as a sort of contribution to this field. So then this these projects, what kind of disciplines do you need and how do we get this to work? For this project, we have drawn on expertise, obviously within archaeology. We also have worked with a team at the State University of Zanzibar who are in partly in the archaeology department and partly in the geography and environmental science department. And they have been working with us on thinking about contemporary uses of landscape so that we can sort of draw parallels and inspiration from sort of draw lines between past and present in some of the ways people use the landscape. We also really need geosciences. So for what we're doing, thinking about landscape change, that relies on sediment analysis that's being done in laboratories in Aarhus and by my colleague Federica Sulas. And we also have various scientists looking at the remains that we excavate. So we've got isotope specialists in bioarchaeology who've been looking at the human and the animal remains so that you can draw a bigger picture about what people were eating and how they were managing their livestock. We also have paleoecologists who are looking at plant remains and thinking about analyzing charcoal and identifying what plants were being used. So we've got this really broad range of sort of science and humanities approaches to the past. And then we've also got this approach to contemporary understandings of land use and um, the ways that people move through a landscape. And then finally, we collaborate with or we share knowledge with NGOs, and in particular, an NGO working on developing seaweed farming and agricultural opportunities for women in the Zanzibar archipelago today. And what's interesting about that is thinking about how that fits into cultural traditions and how women working in these contexts, there are some barriers to their inclusion here. And those are sort of cultural barriers about the ways that people perceive of women's work. And so we also start getting into a very sort of human scale of thinking about the division of labor and, and how that might have affected elements of resource use in the past and how it affects attempts at conservation and the maintenance of sustainable practice today. You describe that you need a lot of different competences. You work with a lot of scholars from different disciplines to look at the different aspects. So If now somebody came and said, I really like your project and I give you unlimited resources, what would you do? I think there are all sorts of different directions that you could take it. 
I think it would be wonderful to do a LIDAR survey and to think about doing some remote sensing across the islands. And what that means is flying an aeroplane across and they use, I'm not an expert on this, but they use sort of different frequencies of light and take sort of laser photogrammetry from an aeroplane of a landscape. And what you can do with that is you can actually look at archaeological remains and it can look almost through vegetation. So there's been some great work in places like Southern Africa where they've mapped whole past landscapes using this airborne technology. So I think I'd start with that because a lot of what we have been doing is quite on the ground. And so you're limited by, you know, what you can see and where you can move to. And I think starting with that kind of mapping would be fantastic. I think at another scale down, it would be wonderful. I mean, it'd be wonderful just to increase the excavations, I suppose, and to excavate at more sites and to do a lot more work thinking about the landscapes more generally. So we've done a relatively limited landscape survey around the towns. And it would be great to expand that to think about landscape change across a much broader area. So to think about landscape change across the island landscape. I think if I had unlimited money, I also would really like to expand some of the community work because I think it would be wonderful to connect this up with some of the conversations people are having today about resources on Zanzibar. So for example, there has been historical ecology work thinking about Zanzibar's forests and how they are declining and diminishing and talking about how that is linked to a loss of customary traditions around preserving and conserving them among local communities. And I think doing more work thinking about skills and conservation traditions among local communities would be really wonderful. So to sort of expand the contemporary part of this project. And so not just to think about how people managed forests in the past, but then to bring that right up to date and talk to people about how their grandparents managed forests. And then to try and connect that into conservation initiatives and policy debates and perhaps to develop resources for tourism because Zanzibar has a very big tourist economy and being able to turn landscape resources like forests into ecotourism destinations has been highlighted as one way to help preserve them and to sort of connect that whole circle of the past the present and the future, I think, in some really in-depth ways, I think would be fantastic. We were talking about uh, the things that you found earlier and that you will return them to Zanzibar. And I read that you're planning to um, start a visitor center, which tells also the story of the past. Can you say a few more words about that? Yes. Well, actually, the Zanzibar Antiquities Department which is part of the Ministry of Natural Resources and Tourism on Zanzibar, has a plan to promote some of Zanzibar's earlier archaeological sites. 
and heritage because much of the tourism and much of people's understanding of the Zanzibari past is based around the Omani period of the 18th and really 19th century on Zanzibar and the the grand palaces and things which are in Zanzibar town from that time. And so the Antiquities Department has as one of their aims a plan to promote tourism to other sites like Ngujiraku and to develop a sort of broader picture, broader heritage landscape on Zanzibar showing all these different types of settlement. And we have actually contributed to that already. We created a series of posters and exhibition resources for the visitor centre, which have been printed on Zanzibar and are, are now available at the site. In terms of the objects, they will be creating object displays as well. And as we return our materials, we will hope to work with them on that. Again, it's delayed because of the pandemic, because nothing and no one are really traveling at the moment. But that's one part of a whole series of initiatives on Zanzibar. There's also a plan to create a a maritime museum on Zanzibar talking about living traditions of connecting with the sea and connecting that with a broader, a sort of long-term past of maritime fishing and sailing and connectivity in the region. Is there anything that we should talk about more? Is there anything that you would like to add? One of the things that I think we have tried to implement at a number of scales with this project is to try and work ethically. And by this, I mean obviously in the ways that we collaborate locally and we have worked hard to collaborate with local scholars and to build in their expertise, not just to make them follow what we're interested in. And so a lot of the local heritage and landscape knowledge that's being collected on Zanzibar builds on the expertise of our collaborator at the State University, Fatma. Saeed. That's what she's interested in. So we've tried to work ethically in that way. But I also think that this broader idea of thinking about how humans interact with their environment, about trying to create understandings of that human action in the past, and also trying to do justice to cultural and sort of landscape or sort of environmental practices in the present is informed by an ethical engagement too. So many of the projects that deal with human landscape interactions are trying to do justice to local knowledge about a landscape and sort of local practices and understandings and bring those into conversations about sustainability, conservation, and landscape resource use. And we are not, in my project, we're not explicitly working with policymakers, but what we are trying to do is to bring in a sort of human scale understanding of urbanism over the long term in Zanzibar and think about how people interacted with the landscape and created particular forms of settlement. And we're trying to bring that right up to the present day as a way of doing justice to 
local traditions and understandings. I think that we're on quite a modest scale compared to those elsewhere. There are some really inspiring projects, which I think have developed over time in parts of Eastern Africa. So, for example, in Limpopo National Park in southeastern Africa, there's a really long term project run out of Uppsala University by Annelie Ekblom, among others, where they have been engaging with heritage in the region and the heritage of people's practices in the landscape. She is an archaeologist, but also she does paleo-environmental studies. So she looks at pollen and landscape change over time. But it's also been a project which has engaged really extensively with the ways people live now and incorporated local knowledge into the conversations about how that forest is managed. I believe that the current richness of that has developed over time from a long-term engagement with the region. And I think those kind of ethical engagements are often at the core of the reasons for doing these projects. And I don't think I can aspire to saying we've done as well yet, but I'm inspired by that kind of work and by trying to do justice to local traditions and practices as well. You were at SCAS 2015-2016? I was. How was your stay here? SCAS is a very special place. It was a really wonderful place to spend a year in residence. I actually loved Uppsala generally, and I was in Uppsala for even longer for another year afterwards. And I really enjoyed being in Sweden for all sorts of reasons. SCAS itself is a wonderful experience because of the forms of interaction that you have. I remember when I was offered the residency, the fellowship, and they said that the two requirements are that you come to lunch and that you come to the seminars. And this seemed really easy, but actually it's brilliant because at lunch you have these conversations with researchers across a wide range of disciplines about things you know nothing about or things you know everything about. And then that experience is then amplified with everybody with this really lively schedule of everybody giving a seminar, others feeling empowered to ask questions about topics perhaps they hadn't thought about before, and really sort of developing the ways that you think really broadly in a really interdisciplinary way. I found that to be really enriching in all sorts of ways as a scholar. I think being in Uppsala was inspiring in some very specific ways to do with this project because the Department of Archaeology and Ancient History in Uppsala is actually one of the centres where a lot of work on historical ecology in Africa where a lot of work on thinking about African landscapes is being done. I would say the Swedish government and CEDA fund that work in some quite enlightened ways, which enables people to do projects which are really explicitly aimed at helping develop local capacity. 
And I learned a lot from people in that department as well about ways that they work in the African past and about the connectedness of a lot of disciplines, which is something they're also enacting in the department in Uppsala University. So being in Uppsala was a really rich experience in two separate ways, I would say. What did you work on while you were here? A lot of different things. This project was born, the Zanzibar project was born while I was in Uppsala. That was also a time when I was building connections with colleagues in Denmark, in Aarhus. And we created this Center for Urban Network Evolutions, which is funded by the Danish National Research Foundation. And my contribution to that was thinking through these sites in Zanzibar. So this project was born during that time. I also, I suppose my main writing project was that I wrote and edited a large volume together with a colleague called The Swahili World, which would not have come to fruition if I hadn't had time at SCAF. Yeah, you need a bit of time for those projects. You really do. And now you are the PI of a multidisciplinary project. I mean, we've talked about this. So what are your tips when launching and running such a project, which brings together different disciplines? And even at multiple locations, you mentioned Denmark, for example, and other places that are involved in your projects. I think my number one top tip is to recognize the expertise of others so working in an interdisciplinary way is wonderful but you don't have to be an expert in all the disciplines and in fact bringing together expertise is my take on how we do that work the best and so it's about creating channels of communication and settings in which we can discuss our different interpretations. We have lots of separate areas of activity, as you've identified. So work is happening in a lab in Aarhus, work is happening in a lab in York. Some people are doing some research in the landscape in Zanzibar, but we all meet and we share progress and challenges and insights every two weeks. But we also have sort of bigger meetings where we We talk about interpretations and how we bring together our interpretations. And I actually have often found that the interpretations are different depending on what scale you're looking at. So the geoarchaeologist I work with will have an interpretation of the soil, which makes no sense to me on the basis of what I know of the cultural history, you know, and we have to find a way of bringing those interpretations into alignment. And that's what happens through those meetings where we sort of take themes and think about how we, each of us, can contribute to them. The physical meetings are the best because you can spend more time as well. So actually, my colleagues at Aarhus did a, a wonderful thing when we were having one of these meetings, putting together the DNRF Center. We did walk and talk we were paired off into pairs of people with different specialisms and we'd sort of do a lap of the park and come back and then switch and do another one and we could talk about whatever we wanted but it it ended up with us all sort of getting an insight from other people's perspective the things you were interested in doing and there was something about that process of walking actually that was really 
productive in those terms. Unfortunately, we can't do it now, but perhaps I'll try and emulate that when we can. Thank you very much for joining me on SCAS Talks and talking to me and to our listeners, of course, about your exciting research. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in the theme Africa, and I have talked to Stephanie Wynne Jones, who is a lecturer and Africanist archaeologist at the University of York in the UK. Previously, in episode 14, we heard more about studies of the African labor market from Andreas Eckert. And in the next episode, within the theme Africa, we will learn more about death and memory in modern Southern Africa from Rebecca Lee. But first we will resume our journey to outer space. In the upcoming two episodes of SCAS Talks, we will learn more about the search for exoplanets and habitable worlds from Nikolai Piskunov and about nickel as a catalyst for the building blocks of life from Anna Neubeck. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Previous topic in SCAS Talks have included research on the brain, global governance, the study of languages, and we have also dived into the topic of diversity as well as different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. The variety of the topics and scholars featured in this podcast is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, and we hope that you find something of interest for you. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Stephanie Wynne-Jones once again for joining SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.